Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Uh, we're going to go right now to my dear friend, and we were sitting here talking during the news, and it's so good to have him back here on Tuesday with uh, another great story from our historical West. Good morning. Here's Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. Yes, I do have another great story. Okay. And uh, this also comes, well, let me just say, first of all, hi to Kimberly. Kimberly wrote to me this week, and she asked if I would mention where I get some of the stories. Mm -hmm. And so I told her I've got about 50 or 60 copies of the old True West and Frontier Times magazines clear back in the 60s and 70s. Which leads me to a question that I had called in, and I forgot to mention this to you. Thank you to Kimberly for asking you that question. How uh, how do you go about validating all these stories? Do you have some kind of a little scrutiny that you go through? You know, I try. Uh, sometimes I'll go to the Internet to say, okay, did this really happen, or how did it happen? Or So I, I try to be as accurate as I can can and yeah. check out as much as I can. But there again, history is how one perceived yeah. it at the time. Exactly. It can be a little muddled. Yeah, you're not kidding. So, what have we got this morning? So, Kimberly, today I'm going to take uh, this story from the same book I took last week uh, from Ray Bagby. It's called Throw Down the Box. Oh, I love that book. And so, just to kind of recap, we're going to do a continuation of last week. Is okay. what we're going to do. So, just to recap... The, we're going to go back about 200 years, and you may wonder what were the very first of the first wagons and stuff to come west, to start the migration west. So uh, just to recap, last week I mentioned in 1827, William Ashley took the first wheeled vehicle west of the Missouri. Then in 1829, William Sublet took a wagon uh, west. Then in 1836, the Reverend Marcus Whitman and Reverend Henry Spaulding, they headed west. Then we moved to 1841, and this was the John Bidwell and uh, John Bartleson uh, company that headed, uh, headed west. So, uh, and then uh, we can't forget, uh, let's see, where are they? The um, Donner Party, yes. Yeah. And, what year? That was 1849, wasn't it? Uh, I'm trying to see I that I think it here. was. Yeah. The Donner Party, 1846. 46. Yeah, that was the Donner Party. So they were, uh, you know, you know what happened to them. And they were, obviously, they lost about half their people Ken, let me going ask, over the Donner Pass. Let me ask you a question here real quick. When they made the decisions, these various uh, expeditions to go west, and let's say they had an old, the wagons and the horses and the oxen, etc. I mean, uh, what was their main intent? Was to start building cities, growing cities, or get private property? I mean, did they all go as a group to start a small community, or what? I, I think their goal was the the thought of free land out in the west that they could find a place next to a a nice stream or a river and start a start a town or uh, you know it was about that time that the gold rush started too but yeah, but before then it was you know the thoughts of free land and beautiful place to settle to yeah. raise your family yeah. So, so that's kind of where we are right now. So then we start in 1847. Let's go back to there. 
<clears throat> now, it was the great, uh, actually, Mormon migration a year after the Donner tragedy that kind of turned the trail west into a real highway. That's when it really took off. Uh, the first wagons under Brigham Young followed the Donner Trail over Big Mountain into the Salt Lake Valley in July of 1847. Now, those first Mormon wagons would soon be followed by thousands of Conestogas, buckboards, buggies, white-top surreys and carts if you can imagine any kind of shape kind description of vehicle to carry your goods and maybe even carry them on your back to walk i was going to say the elements of the rain the cold the snow etc where did they go to protect themselves well and sometimes they didn't there are stories of windstorms coming up that just completely tore apart wagon, uh, the covers, the canvas, and uh, destroying some of their stuff. I mean, it was tough going. But, uh, you know, almost in a day, the old trail was worn deep, and Salt Lake City became the crossroads of the West. Mm -hmm. And there were trails of every kind that led off to new mining discoveries and settlement sites. And it was the only place between Missouri and the Pacific where settlers, explorers, miners, adventurers, anybody could get uh, new uh, Every week for the last three weeks, <laughs> your phone. phone has gone off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave it out in the pickup next okay. week. Okay, so that was the only place you could get stuff, and if you had tired animals, you could trade for fresh livestock. Where did the stores or the general surplus stores, etc., where did they get their goods and services? You know, I'm only going to assume that there were uh, some of these people that had stores. They would bring that west as far as Salt Lake and uh, for the merchants. I was going to say, did they do any shipping into the California coast and then Uh, bring it over or not? You know, I don't know that for sure. I, I don't know that. I that they could have. But anyway, with the thriving city and a growing population located, located near the midpoint of the Oregon Trail, the need for a mail service and transportation quick, quickly kind of became a priority. And both services lagged behind uh, until an earth-shaking event occurred at a place called Sutter's Mill oh. in California, oh, yeah. 24th of January, 1848. James Marshall discovered gold in this mill race. Well, of course, the news spread like wildfire, and it didn't reach the eastern states until late in the season, uh, so it was tough for them to head west that early. But the first signs of spring in 1849, thousands and thousands of these anxious, and they call them Argonauts. Uh, the, the, really? Yeah, they call them Argonauts that, were, that wanted to head out to the gold fields. Huh. And I've heard that term a number of times, and I'm not, not sure where that started but anyway they were all hoping to cross the mountains to hit the el dorado the big gold rush the big strike you know so anyway as i mentioned every possible kind of transportation was represented men on horseback or ride mules some driving fast buckboards or light spring wagons and a lot of them organized into wagon trains and countless others on foot packs on their backs and some who had no real idea of even where california was they just knew it was out there somewhere. So they tried to push their worldly possessions across the plains, actually get this up in wheelbarrows sometimes. So can you imagine pushing a wheelbarrow? Do you want to know what Argonaut is in the dictionary? What does it say? Any of those who sailed with Jason to find the golden fleece. That's the only place I've heard of Argonaut. 
Yeah. So anyway, that's what they refer to them. I'll be done. Anyway, well, they were looking for gold. Yeah, they were. Well, yeah, exactly. Okay. So again, uh, by midsummer, Salt Lake City was overwhelmed by hordes of gold seekers all looking for the shortest and the fastest way to the gold fields. The value of fresh horses was at a premium. Oh, my. You know, while staple goods like flour and coffee commanded the highest possible price, Pack mules worth no more than thirty bucks back in Missouri sold for two hundred in Salt Lake City. Oh my. parties of well, you can imagine the gold fever. Yeah. They were going to pay anything to get there. So parties of miners having three or four heavy Conestoga type wagons were anxious to trade all of them for a single lightweight, and they call it an ambulance or a white top buggy. So just a small wagon. They just wanted something that was going to be fast to yeah. get them there. So now a correspondent, for and they the, didn't have anything as far as uh, uh, clothing or well, extra clothing, chests or anything like probably that. Probably not much of anything. Wow. No, as, as far as that goes, yeah. But a correspondent for the New York Tribune wrote that there were no signs on shops or business houses in Salt Lake. Quote: They needed no sign, nor had they time to build one. They were so crowded with business in so, Salt Lake City. Yeah, so thousands of people coming through. Let me ask you, what part of Salt Lake City, the town, uh, actually was the hub of all this activity. I mean, like today, can you go and see? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, that's all pretty much. I mean, there's that uh, Pioneer Museum and some things like that. Like the, This is the place monument. There's some old cabins that they've moved into there. But I'm just going to assume it had to be right downtown around what they call Temple Square. I see. I just would think it would be see. within a few miles around that. Okay. But... Uh, like I say, they, uh, many of the travelers had planned to receive or send mail, but there was no post office in Salt Lake City, nor any kind of mail service. Now, I have heard that as you came across, sometimes people would find a buffalo skull, uh, and they would actually write a little message on a buff- buffalo skull, skull for people coming along behind, say, hey, this is the so-and-so party, we were here on... Uh, May 2nd uh, really? or something like that. Yeah, so there was some, uh, I guess, if you want to call that mail. But uh, anyway, uh, there were countless, uh, a lot of others who needed transportation and those whose livestock had played out, and there were others that were too old or weak to continue on foot, uh, as well as merchants and others who could afford to pay their way, but there was no transportation to be had sometimes. They just were stuck. I can't even imagine the people, how tough they were, yeah. knowing that every single day they got up from their breakfast, limited as it is, and knew they had to walk about 30 miles that yeah. day. Yeah, just get there, you know. Holy But smoke. anyway, that tra- uh, condition did, couldn't last forever, uh, because where there was money to be made, carrying mail and express, someone would uh, seize the opportunity, and where transportation was needed, someone would find a way to take a stagecoach west. In other words, the old saying, Zeb, mind the miners. You know, yeah. uh, instead of going after the gold, let's... Uh, let's so they had mine. stage lines that would leave Salt Lake and head west. Yeah, eventually, yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But, uh, it, well, actually quite a bit. The first western stage line was established in California. And the gold rush of 1849 quickly demanded means of transportation faster and safer than what they refer to as Shanks Mayor. You know what that means? No. Walking. <laughs> 
exchange mayor. Really? Yeah. So, and that's how they went between uh, the growing number of gold camps in the Sierras. And before the first stage lines were organized, the miners had to walk from San Francisco to the new discoveries being made in the mountains. Did they wear, you know, I know this is a dumb question, but their footwear had to be extremely tough. And there again, why not mine the miners? Be a, a bootmaker. And you could charge whatever you wanted. Wow. Right? So, uh, you know, few owned or could afford horses, so they were forced to take what they jokingly called also, quote, the foot and walker line. The (laughs) foot and walker. In other words, walk. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, you know, it's their name for being sore-footed to get to the diggings. And for those who had already struck it rich, there was then the problem of getting their gold dust and nuggets safely to the banks of San Francisco. That was my question. I was yeah. just going to hit, where did yeah. they go with the gold yeah. dust? And that was across several hundred miles of wilderness where, you know, you had cutthroats and robbers. And anyway, people uh, laying to rob you. Was it so, worth the effort? <laughs> you'd have to ask them that. Oh. For those that made it and those that didn't. Uh, there was a guy named John Whisman, and he have met, may have been the very first to offer a stagecoach service in California, and it may have kind of uh, taxed your uh, passenger humor to call it a service, because in 1849, he was running a coach, and I use that term loosely, of sorts, between San Francisco and San Jose, and you camped wherever it got dark, but still charging his passengers two ounces of gold dust. Now, James E. Birch, an early 49er from Rhode Island, was one of the first to start a stage line in California, and he was prominent in the Pacific Coast in the Southwest, uh, staging for a lot of years afterwards. He arrived with, <coughs> excuse me, he ar- <clears throat> Sorry, i got to have a drink. Okay, go, um, it's water, folks. It's all water, <laughs> it's I promise. It's all water. Okay. So, uh, he arrived with the first gold seekers when he was 21 years old, but he quickly realized that he could make his fortune faster by transporting miners to the diggings than he could by digging for gold himself. Again, what I've said, mining the miners. So, starting with an old ranch wagon with a wooden plank across its bed for a seat, he began charging miners two ounces of dust, which was then about $32, to haul them and their baggage into the mountains. He got several more wagons and soon began a regular service between Sacramento and the American River. And uh, only a few months later, he extended his service to a place called Marysville and Stockton with little, he didn't have any competition. So he was soon demanding $200 fare. Per person? Yes. And he was so busy that he had to purchase more wagons and hire extra drivers. 200 per person, and how many could you get in a wagon? Oh, I don't know. You know, eight, six, eight, eight? Six, eight, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean you're talking, if it's eight, 1600 bucks. Yeah. I mean, and how many wagons did he have on well, that? Well, he, he just added more wagons and drivers. Why don't I mean, you and I get in that business? I, I don't know. Oh. Go find a wagon, I yeah. guess. Anyway, so seeing Birch's success at staging, <clears throat> crude though it was, others decided to try it, and within a year, miners could choose between Birch's line or those of a guy named John Wistman or Warren Hall and Jared Crandall 
Ackley and Morrison, Crandall and Sutherland, Phineas Banning and D.W. Alexander, or Brady and Company. So you see a whole bunch of others jumped on the wagon, so to speak. So to speak. <laughs> yes. And so they bought a dozen 14-passenger mud wagons across the plains. And they were not the Concords, they were the, uh, which were the finest of all coaches. But they were similar to the famed Abbott and Downing coach, which was, uh, you know, a pretty nice uh, coach. Now, commonly called mud wagons, they were lighter in weight and designed for rough mountain trails or muddy, rutted roads. And many of these early mud wagons were actually the so-called celerity wagon, which was manufactured at Troy, New York. Okay, But just about any coach, not a Concorde, was called a mud wagon, uh, which meant it was a rugged coach, and it kind of traded appearance and comfort for the strength and did the they, Did they durability. pull those with oxen or horses? I don't know that. I'm going to assume they used horses, because at this point, they wanted things to move fast. I see. I mean, the faster you could move your passengers, you know, the more money. And, of course, oxen were more steady, but probably a lot, lot slower. Yeah, like me. Yeah, <laughs> me and you. So the following year, here we are, June 1851, James Birch imported the first Concords brought to San Francisco aboard sailing ships on this long sea voyage around Cape Horn. Holy smokes. And, Zeb, I have heard a lot of stories That's about Cape Horn. That's a long voyage. The storms, yeah. the winter, oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine any time going around the Cape down there. But anyway, during the next decade, hundreds of Concords would be shipped to California around by sea, by, on, on the ocean. So in 1851, Frank Stevens' Pioneer Line was in business between Sacramento and a place called Hangtown. It was the first of many lines operated under the name Pioneer. Now, in May of 1851, Hall and Crandall were awarded the first government mail contract on the Pacific Coast. They agreed to carry the U.S. mail between San Francisco and San Jose for for $1,600 a year. Um, a year? Yeah, and I'm not sure how far it is between San Francisco and San Jose, but it's not that far, uh, I don't think. No. I, I'm going to throw a number out, and I could be really wrong. It's been so long. I'm going to say... I want to say 95 or 100 miles right in that That's area. That's kind of what I was thinking, yeah. maybe around 100. But $1,600. Uh, anyway, James Birch and Frank Stevens were very ambitious, so it came as no surprise when on January 1st, 1854, they merged their two lines to form the California Stage Company. Really? And later, it was called the Stockton Overland Mail. Now, already controlling much of the stage business along the Pacific Coast, Birch and Stevens consolidated nearly all the remaining lines. In other words, they bought up you know, all the, the smaller outfits. Uh, and by 1856, had nearly 200 coaches on the road. Oh, and wow. most of them were the tough and dependable mud wagons that I mentioned. Yeah. And, but there was a few Concords uh, were also in use along the better roads. And, uh, and this was long before most other Western stage company used them. Because, the, you know, before there were any decent roads, uh, a Concord, I don't know if it would even hold together on some of those really rough ones. But the California Stage Company served nearly every mining camp in the Gold Rush country, California. And before long, they were running coaches across the Cascade Range into Oregon. In May of 1857, the Birch and Stevens line 
pushed its way across the Sierras to a place called Honey Lake on the eastern side of the Sierras, becoming the first company to enter the Great Basin. And within months, they extended their line to Bigler's Lake, which is actually Lake Tahoe. Really? Uh, and I've mentioned, I've bragged about this before. I am related to that Bigler. By Are the you way. really? I am. His name was Henry Bigler. Oh, my god. And goodness. he actually was at uh, Sutter's Mill when gold was discovered. Oh, my. He was one of the guys. And, and he's your relative. He's my relative. Look, that's where you made all your money. Yes. And he didn't make any money there. So, <laughs> anyway. So, uh, anyway, it kept going. Uh, in 1843, uh, uh, that was kind of when... Uh, Things were probably at their height, uh, as far as... What year was that again? About 1843. And I see we're about out of time, but, uh, you know, we we could go on and talk about the pioneer stage lines. I mean, staging between the Missouri and the Great Basin got off to a much slower start than it did in California, because, you know, it's just a lot of barren land, uh, but... Postal authorities had established a mail service of sorts between Independence, Missouri, and Salt Lake City. But it was kind of a hit-and-miss thing, occasional venture with no regular service. Uh, Mail often arrived at Salt Lake City faster by going around by ship to California and then taking the mail to Salt Lake. I have a quick question for you. And and really, uh, this is where I wish we had Ray Bagby on the air with us. What did they do if they broke an axle or broke a wheel or whatever on these stages out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. That is a great question, and I don't know the answer. They didn't I, have a towing service and, back and in they those didn't, days. I don't remember seeing any stagecoach with a spare tire. Yeah, really. And but like say, I don't either axle, know that you mention it. You know, but an axle could break, and I, yeah. I'm only going to assume that. Hopefully, some of those people knew how to actually make a new axle. Maybe, I, but that would be really, really tough. I mean, yeah. So, uh, I, I think in some pl- cases they were, we got to get back beyond with we us. We just were pl- they were just plain stuck out I, there. I've got to run, but uh, we're yeah. late. But can you do more of this next week? Sure. This is I've been this book that Ray gave me has got a lot of. What about stuff. the moving, if you will, of transportation of that type here to the state of Idaho? Do you have any stories about Idaho in there? Um, from later the gold on, and silver mines that we had. Right. And later on, of course, then they started coming from Kelton, Utah yeah. to Boise. There was a stage line from Kelton to Boise. Okay. And uh, I can't remember the name of that one. It might, might have been the Overland, but I'm not sure. I, I got to run. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, he is a fascinating uh, historian, Dr. History, with us again. And I want to also thank, if I may, Dr. History Ray Bagby for the information books that he gave you. Oh, yeah. Excellent friend of ours. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.